today is an important day on the Christian calendar. Uh, today is Pentecost Sunday, uh, the day that the Christian church remembers and celebrates the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church as recorded in the book of Acts chapter 2. At the time of Acts 2, Pentecost was a Jewish festival that celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. It was celebrated 50 days after Passover, which means that the events of Acts 2 happened 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. A couple of things that I think are worth noting about Pentecost as we get started here is that it was a pilgrim festival, which meant that all Jewish men, all Jewish adult men were expected to come to Jerusalem from wherever they were living in order to personally attend this important festival. Now, Pentecost was a holiday. Work was not to be done on this day. School was out. Shops were closed. It was a time of national celebration. Today I'm starting a short three-week series that I've simply entitled Empowered. And this short series is going to be looking at Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. Next week we're going to look at what actually happened on the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts 2. Today we're looking at Acts 1 and the lead up or the preparation time prior to the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2. For those of you who may not be familiar though, I want to quickly uh, summarize the events of Acts 2. Uh, what happened on that day of Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. If you're not familiar with the story, the disciples of Jesus were together in a house. Uh, we call it the upper room. And the Bible tells us that suddenly the Holy Spirit fell on them. And some really interesting and strange and sort of crazy things uh, happened. We're told that they heard a sound like a violent wind. They saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each person. It's like, this is what it looks like to us. We're not exactly certain what's going on, but this is what it, this is what it looks like. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in languages that they had never learned, but they were able to speak them. Uh, those pilgrims that we mentioned a minute ago, who had come to Jerusalem from all nations over the known world, heard what was happening, and they gathered in amazement because they heard the disciples speaking in their own native languages. This was a supernatural event, a miracle. And it resulted in a large number of people gathering, which gave the Apostle Peter the opportunity to stand before this crowd and preach to them the first sermon of the church era. And in this sermon, he proclaimed the crucified and risen Jesus to be Savior and Lord. And in response to the preaching of the gospel, 3,000 people were saved in a single day and the church of Jesus Christ was born. What a wonderful, wonderful event in the history of the church. The disciples that day were empowered by the Spirit of God to do things they could not do in their own abilities. They received from the Holy Spirit supernatural empowering. And what it led to, the result of it, was the preaching of the gospel, the salvation of many people, 
and the birth of the church. Friends, I hope we can be in agreement today that we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The New Testament communicates to us over and over and over our need for the power of God in our lives if we are to live the way God wants us to live and if we're to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. In our own strength, resisting temptation and sin is way more than we can handle. You've probably figured this out. Can I get a witness? In our own strength, living in peace and unity with people different than us, people who think different than us, can be way too daunting of a challenge. In our own strength, forgiving people who have wronged us can often be out of our reach. In our own strength, sharing our faith with another person can be way too intimidating for us to do. In our own strength, it can seem impossible to imagine people with hearts that have been hardened to God for years ever coming to faith in Jesus. For all of these things and more, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God, the power of the risen Christ to live like God wants us to live and to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. So next week, we're going to look more closely at Acts 2 and what actually happened on the day of Pentecost. But for today, from Acts 1, we're going to look at what happened leading up to the day of Pentecost. We're going to consider what the disciples were doing before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see a couple things that prepared their hearts for the outpouring of the Spirit. So I want to start this series by looking at Acts 1, verses 4 through 8, where Jesus promises his disciples that they are going to receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It should be on the screen behind me uh, or on your screen as you're watching from home, and here's what it says. On one occasion, while he, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Three things that I want to highlight from these verses, these words of Jesus. First, Jesus promises them they will receive supernatural empowering. They will. It's a promise. He calls this the gift promised by the Father, which he reminds them that he had told them all about it. Now, if you're familiar with this, Jesus taught extensively about the Holy Spirit in John chapter four, chapters 14, 15, and 16. I want to quickly mention at least seven key things that Jesus had taught his disciples about the Holy Spirit. Jesus had taught his disciples that the Holy Spirit would dwell in all believers. He taught that the Holy Spirit would teach believers everything they needed to know. 
He taught that the Holy Spirit would bring to believers remembrance the things that he had taught them. So the Holy Spirit was going to help them remember the stuff that Jesus said to them. He taught that the Holy Spirit would testify of him, that the Holy Spirit would bear witness to who he is. He taught that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He taught that the Holy Spirit would guide believers into all truth. And he taught that the Holy Spirit would glorify him. The Holy Spirit would glorify Jesus. Knowing these things or the work of the Holy Spirit should let us know how much we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so he told them they'd receive the gift promised by the Father. He says that they would be baptized with the Spirit. And in verse 8, Jesus makes it very clear. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It is a promise of supernatural power. I am convinced about myself, about you, about you, and about Christians in general, that we live far below the best that God has for us. At least in part because we undervalue and underappreciate the power that is available to us through the Holy Spirit. We need more awareness of the Holy Spirit. We need a greater realization of our need of and reliance on the Holy Spirit. We need to believe that just as Jesus promised Holy Spirit power to the early disciples, Holy Spirit power remains available to us today. It is a promise that extends to us in the year 2020. And I want to encourage you, this is just a little bit of an aside, but I want to encourage you not to get overly hung up on terminology. We can talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. We can talk about the power of God. We can talk about the power of Christ. It's all the same thing. Supernatural empowering from God. It is available and we need it. And in a couple of minutes, we'll look uh, at some ways that the early disciples were prepared to receive the supernatural empowering. But let's first consider the second thing that I want to highlight from Acts 1, 4 through 8. And this is a very timely thing for what has been happening in our country in recent days. The disciples asked Jesus in verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Now, I want you to understand what this means. This means that the disciples are still at this moment motivated by very narrow, nationalistic aspirations. What they're essentially asking Jesus is if he is about to restore Israel to national independence. Their thinking is narrow and nationalistic, but Jesus has something bigger in mind. Jesus is about to broaden their horizons. Jesus tells them that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. So in this place that you know and love so well, you're going to be my witnesses here. But then he tells them, you're going to be my witnesses in the nearby areas of Judea and Samaria as well. 
But then he goes on and he says, you are going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He broadens their horizons. He lets them know that the kingdom of God isn't just about them and theirs. Jesus is building a kingdom with international membership. The great theologian John Stott writes about Acts 1, 6-8, and here's what he says. For Christ's kingdom, while not incompatible with patriotism, tolerates no narrow nationalisms. He rules over an international community in which race, nation, and rank are no barriers to fellowship. And when his kingdom is consummated at the end, the countless redeemed company will be seen to be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And Stott there is, of course, quoting from Revelation uh, chapter 7, which says this. is one of the most, most beautiful passages you're ever going to read in the Bible. Here's what it says. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All of the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Friends, that is an amazing picture. People from all races, nations, and languages praising the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's where everything that we work for as Christians is headed. All of us together, the entire world represented before the throne of Jesus Christ, praising his name as one people forever. And here's the point. Jesus broadened the early disciples' horizons to realize that his kingdom wasn't just about them and theirs. Jesus was after the whole world. Jesus died for the whole world. And so the kingdom of God is not just for certain people. The kingdom of God is for everyone. Whosoever will, let him come and drink of the rivers of life freely. The kingdom of God is international in its membership. Every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. And so there are two important takeaways from this. And here's the first one. Racism is antithetical to the kingdom of God. Racism is deeply displeasing to God. Racism is a sin, and like all sin, it must be repented of and turned away from. There is no place for racism in the body of Christ because the kingdom of God is for all people, every nation, tribe, people, tongue, every race. And so if you recognize any racism within your own heart, you've got to admit that. You've got to lay it on the altar of God. You've got to 
Bring it before God. Repent of it. And ask the Holy Spirit to set you completely free. Here's the second important takeaway. It's okay to love your country. But for a Christian, our highest allegiance is to the kingdom of God. The disciples wanted to know when Israel would be restored to independence. Jesus wanted them to just be his witnesses. To their own people and to the ends of the earth. It is okay for Christians to love our country. I love our country a lot. It's okay for us to work for the common good through the political process. It's okay for us to care about all the issues that impact our nation and to advocate for things that we believe are in the best interest of our country, even if some others disagree with us. It's okay for us to do that. I think Christians should do all those things. But our main thing as believers is not any of that. Our main thing as believers is to be ambassadors for Christ. To be His witnesses. That's our main thing. Everything else is secondary and must be recognized as secondary. Now, secondary things can still be important, but they are not the main thing. Our love of and allegiance to our country is an important thing, but it is a secondary thing to our love of and allegiance to Christ and His kingdom. And so, friends, if you evaluate your heart honestly and you and you come to the conclusion that your country has a greater hold on your heart than Christ and his kingdom I respectfully submit to you that that is called idolatry idolatry so two takeaways Christians must reject all racism and Christians must be people whose highest allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And if I can just be honest with you, this is much more about what Acts 2 is about than all the fireworks. All the fireworks were for the purpose of the gospel going to all people. They were a means to achieve the coming together of all people under Christ. So this can be argued is really what Acts 2 is all about. Christ promised power. Christ is building a kingdom with international membership. And then the third thing that I want to highlight from the verses we read is that Jesus instructed his disciples in verse 4 to wait for the gift my father promised. They weren't to leave Jerusalem. They were to wait in Jerusalem until they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in that waiting, we see some things that prepared them for receiving the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. To see that, I want us to look at Acts 1, verse 14. I think that'll be on the screen as well. Here's what it said. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so just a quick overview of chapter 1 and verses 4 through 8, which we read, Jesus promised they'd receive power when the Holy Spirit came on them. 
We didn't look at it, but in verses 9 through 11, Jesus then ascends into heaven. And then we come to verses 12 through 14, and they had returned from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They had gone into the upper room, and that's where what we read happened. They all joined together in constant prayer. And then in Acts 1, verses 13 through 26, they selected a new apostle to take the place of the betrayer, Judas. So that's an overview of chapter 1. What I want to focus on now is verse 14, because in this one verse, we see two ways that they were prepared for the events of Pentecost. How they were prepared for receiving the empowering of the Spirit. They were prepared for the empowering of the Spirit through unity and prayer. Unity and prayer. Our text says, they join together in constant prayer. Some translations of the Bible say they all prayed with one accord. They were unified. They were unified. Now, it's really reasonable to think, you know, we're, we're kind of speculating a little bit here. I am. Uh, but it's really reasonable to think that they had some work to do among them to be unified. I mean, if you think about it, not too long before, Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus. Uh, he had been reinstated and forgiven by Jesus, but being <laughs> while he was being reinstated, when Jesus said, hey, look, you're going you're gonna to be martyred for me, Peter turned to John and said, him too? Is he, is he going to be? <laughs> Peter. Just let me stand over here out of, out of sight, would you please? How about him? Martyr him too, is essentially what Peter was saying. So there might have been some relational work that needed to be done. Uh, some had initially doubted the resurrection, which, you know, as some believe and others are still doubting, you, you know, Thomas, come on, we all believe. What's wrong with you? There could have been some work that needed done. And of course, Judas had betrayed Jesus, and there's this this feeling of betrayal and like, who, who else? Is there anybody else that's among us that we can't trust? There are all kinds of reasons that it's plausible that they likely had some work to do to gain unity. So whether that speculation is right or not, it's clear that unity was part of the preparation for the empowering of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. If we want more of the empowering of God's Spirit, individually and collectively, unity is a vitally important ingredient for experiencing the power of God. We need to be relationally unified. So if we have a problem with a brother or sister, that problem needs to be addressed, not ignored, so that we can have relational unity within the body. Lynn Buzzard wrote, Unity becomes precious when you walk through conflict in order to reach it. And I can say amen to that from personal experience. People that I have been in conflict with and then we have worked through it and we have come to a place of unity, those bonds are so tight. The, the, the feelings are so strong there because you went through something difficult but you came out unified. And so we need to be people who are willing to do that work. 
We need to be unified in our desire to receive all that God has for us. We need to be unified in our commitment to partnering with Christ to fulfill His mission in the earth. We need to be unified in our beliefs and our values. Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Unity is a key ingredient to experiencing the Holy Spirit empowering. So let's be people who walk in unity. Let's be people who guard our unity. I believe that we, that we largely are. Every once in a while, something happens here or there, but for the most part, I believe that this is a very unified church, and that's a good thing because unity prepares the way for empowering. If we want to experience all that God has for us at Vineyard Patascala, we need to be a church marked by unity, and we need to be a church that is marked by prayer. We're told that they all join together constantly in prayer. Lloyd Ogilvy says this, Our need for the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit makes prayer and getting right with ourselves and others more than elements of good preparation. They are a necessity. When we desire to experience our own personal Pentecost, an experience with the Holy Spirit that results in supernatural power to do the will of God, we can never determine exactly how or when God is going to fill us with His power or replenish His power in us. But there are two things that we can do to prepare ourselves for that happening. We can make sure that there is no disunity, that there are no relational problems, that would block our receiving of the Spirit, and we can pray. We can pray. If we want to be a church that does more than just read about the work of God in history, but we want to actually participate in Christ's mission in the earth, we cannot do it in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to receive that power, we're going to need going to need to pray. Now listen, most of you have been around here long enough that you know I'm not big on telling people how much they have to pray. I don't know if it's scars from the hours-long prayer meetings I grew up with as a kid or what it is, but I, I'm just not big on telling people how, how long, how much they have to pray. Now you've heard me say over and over that we should set realistic goals for our prayer life. You know, some of us have been given a gift of prayer, and so uh, for those of us that have that, prolonged times of prayer, you know, that, that's just a natural thing. But not all of us have that. And whether you have a unique gift of prayer or not, here's the, the, the truth, here's like what we need. All of us, every single one of us, have to make prayer a regular part of our lives. It just has to be that way. And so I'm never really that concerned with exactly how long people pray, just that they pray. And here's the thing that I have always believed is the most important about prayer, is I like to encourage people toward a posture of unceasing prayer. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. That we view prayer, which what is prayer? It's simply communication with God. That we view prayer as something we do moment by moment, throughout our day. 
it's not, it can be, but it's not necessarily always needing to be something that you say, okay, I'm going to go do that. It's something that you just do moment by moment throughout your day. So yes, we should have set aside times for intensive prayer, but my hope is that we would be people marked by continual communication with God. That just as we're going about our daily life, we are constantly communicating with God. We see someone at a restaurant soon. If not yet, soon. We see someone at a restaurant and the Holy Spirit quickens something in us. And so we pray for them. Not even talking about approaching them now, just, God, that person right over there. You brought them to my mind and so God, I'm going to ask you. Whatever that person needs today, would you provide it for them? You're walking into a store. God, give me your power today. Let me influence someone for your kingdom. You're walking into church on a Sunday morning. God, I ask that today you demonstrate your power in our church. God, today draw someone to yourself. God, I pray that someone would receive salvation in our church today. God, I'm facing this temptation. I need your power right now because I know I'm not up to saying no to this. Help me, God. Help me, God. Pray, pray, pray all the time. Pray for unity. In fact, prayer brings unity. And of course, the specific context of the passage is that we need to join together in prayer. We do need those times where we come together and we pray. We have a lot of opportunities for that in our, in our church. We get together and we pray in small groups. We get together and we pray in our ministry teams. Prayer needs to run through everything that we do. Because we recognize our reliance on the Holy Spirit. Prayer prepares the way for the empowering of the Spirit. The first Pentecost saw the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And so if we want to experience our own personal Pentecost, our own empowering of the Spirit to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish, then these are the things that we must be ready to do. These are the things that we must allow ourselves to be prepared by. Walking in unity and prayer. We've got to guard unity. We've got to pray. Next week, we're going to look at what actually happened on the day of Pentecost. But we know what we need to do to prepare. Maintain unity and pray. And so my appeal to all of us today is that we would be people who are committed to these two things, unity and prayer, and that as we are, we're going to be prepared for the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we so desperately need individually and collectively. Let's stand. 